Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. I am super excited for you guys to hear today's guest, Hannah Sward. Nate and I interviewed Hannah. She's the author of a book, Strip, a memoir. I read it before the interview. It's great. Talks about her time as a sex worker before and during her active addiction. Clean now since May of 2010. We had a wonderful time speaking with her. In addition to her story being wildly inspiring, she is also wildly hilarious. Like you guys are gonna hear the way that she tells us stories with this like deadpan way of speaking. Nate and I were dying. I wanna let you guys know too, right around minute 19, we talk about a method of drug use very, very explicitly. And so if that feels like something that may trigger you, we talk about a method of use and we really describe it. And when I was editing, I thought, oh, we're on the edge of maybe something that could trigger somebody. So I just want to let you guys know right around minute 19, if you think hearing the description of a ritual around drug use and a preparation could trigger you, just pop on through that until about minute 20. And with that, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. My name's Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. Hey guys. Yeah, thanks for joining again. My name is uh, Nate and I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is December 12th, 2022. I can't. December 3rd, 2022. December 3rd. December 3rd. I can't remember. For yet. a second I was like, oh, did it move? That's yeah. okay. But, did no. It move? but no, it's no. the third. Yeah, I can't remember. Also, you didn't say Narcan Nate just now. You only said Nate. Oh. Is that on purpose? No, I just said Nate. All right, yeah. okay, okay. But we can still call you Narcan. Yeah, you can still call me Narcan. All right, okay, yeah. okay. I don't think you've ever done that before. No, I don't know. Yeah, I, I get... Okay, not to get off topic, but so... I, my, I mean, I go by Nate. Everybody call either calls me Narcan Nate or Smitty, so I never really right. know which, okay, what okay, to okay. go by. I had a connect named Smitty, so I'm never going to yeah. call you Smitty. Although he was a nice guy, actually. Yeah. He was a nice... He was a decent... <laughs> well, people call me, like, three different things, and I'm like, I have, like, an identity crisis sometimes. Okay, all right. You know how some connects are, like, nice? You know what I mean? Most of my connects were actually pretty nice. I mean, yeah. As long as they brought what I was looking for, yes. <laughs> Boom! There it is. And you just heard from, from Hannah Sward, our guest today. She wrote a book that I read and loved called Strip. Thank you so much for sending that to me ahead of time. Absolutely. And my pleasure. Before we start, I just want to say, too, I love the way that you wrote it in these little like snippets of, it was almost like stream of conscious memory. They were a couple of pages long, like these little like mini novellas, like little mini stories, like snapshots of your life. Where did you get that idea? Why is that how you structured the book? I've never seen that before with a memoir of this type. I like reading things like that. Like I, I am a big poetry person because, well, especially in sobriety and once I got sober, well, and pre-sobriety, it was hard to, when I would see a page that just had a lot of words on it and no breaks, it just was too much. I was yeah. like, no, 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 no. So my, I naturally am drawn to a page that has more white space and room to breathe, right? And I like clips. And especially in this day and age with, uh, I'll speak for myself, my own attention span, I wanted it to be accessible to people who don't even like necessarily read, right. but they could just flip through it and see like a, like a, a 
like I, the only thing is I wanted the chapter titles to be in the front. So like so there's 75 of them. So someone could be like, oh, that sounds interesting. Dope and bald pussies. I'll just read that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it doesn't need to be like they can just read one clip. They don't have to read the whole thing. Well, that's kind of what I did. I flipped through and stopped and read and stopped and read and stopped and read. That's actually exactly how I consumed it. I just thought that that was like the coolest idea. And that's so true in early recovery. I, so I'm like a big reader and I've always been a big reader. And I remember after the first time I detoxed, I was in rehab trying to read something and I got so scared because my brain like was not working and that eventually faded. But for the first few, like at least two months, I was trying to read stuff and I would have to go back and reread the page like over and over and over again. And I remember thinking, I was like, oh, dude, I like buck myself up this time. I can't even read anymore, you know, but it did pass. (laughs) Yeah, well, two months is pretty good. I mean, I think it took me a lot longer. And uh, well, anyway, yes. Well, let's uh, let's get into your history. So share with us a little bit about where you're from and Mm -hmm. how you got started using. Well, first, uh, thank you for having me. Anna, alcoholic. My sobriety date is May 16, 2010. And I was born in Victoria in uh, British Columbia. And I was born into a family of artists and mainly grew up with my father. My, my mother left when I was two, but I spent summers with her in Florida and my little sister. Uh, it was a very bohemian upbringing, moving around from uh, for example, an island that had no cars or stores, had an outhouse inside the house. I remember when the editor of the book was editing, he called and said, there's an outhouse, an outhouse is supposed to be outside the house. And I'm like, well, this outhouse was inside the house. <laughs> uh, and that was like your plumbing system? You guys had an outhouse inside the house? Because your dad was like a poet and he was kind of a hippie, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this was in the 70s. Uh and then we moved to a commune. And so my upbringing was very, uh, yeah, it was somewhat, it was unorthodox. Right. Uh, and just the very nature of having a poet father. But it certainly lended itself to feeling that what I often hear people say about, you know, feeling other, feeling, you know, just all, this new kid on the block all the time. I think I went to like 10 schools before high school. And, and my dad was really into meditation. So I would sometimes come to school, like in a sari when I was a kid and <laughs> with a little red dot in my you know forehead and uh, things that didn't help also right. mean, <laughs> you know, other than, I mean, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and then, so, and I knew, and I know you said you would spend some time with your, with your mother in Florida. And what was the feeling like staying with your father, right? Because that's unusual, right? Typically kids stay with their mom. Did you have a sense of that when you were younger and feel like that was different? No, that's, it's interesting because I don't think I did. Uh, I certainly felt like I wanted like a packed lunch the way I would see some, uh, you know, kids have like a little metal box with some, you know, their food in it, Uh, (laughs) like some food. I really didn't. Plus I had a stepmom by a certain age, and I would see my mother every summer in Florida for a month. I think as I got older, for sure. I mean, once my father, you know, and my stepmother broke up when I was 14, and then he had a lot of different girlfriends, it did, I did have this sense that, that wow, I'm really with my father. And you really didn't hear that much, especially back then. 
so walk us through how you got started using i know eventually you moved to la so like what does that start to look like for you how do we get there i was in florida going to school in miami and I moved to Los Angeles. It was always my little sisters and my plan that we would be in LA to become actresses and all of that. And when I when I uh, left Miami, she was already here. And at the time, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I began, I went back at 19, I first became a call girl in Chicago uh, to earn some money for college. It seemed like the best idea at the time to me. Uh, and the quickest way to make some money. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I was, you know, I mean, I had no, no money. And, and I wouldn't even say because of no money, I went into back into that industry because a lot of people don't have money and they don't go into that industry. They, you know, have a few different jobs. But I, I got into sex work again. And my sister was stripping at Body Shop, this place that's still there up on Sunset Boulevard. I know exactly where that is. Is that, is that, is that Hollywood? Yeah. The Hollywood, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's still there all these years later. And that's the one that's got legs for the sign, right? And fishnets? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, across the, street. Well. <laughs> across the street. Across the street from, uh, yeah, Chateau Vermont. <laughs> yes, right? And I think now Pink, Pink Tacos is might be across the street. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Nate wants to make a joke so bad. Oh, I just <laughs> I was sitting there oh. thinking that's so great. I know you were. <laughs> okay, <laughs> he wanted to say pink tacos were inside too. No, no, like I was thinking that's such great marketing in my oh, head. Okay. <laughs> that's literally yeah. what I was thinking. You cannot deny that. Right. that is not no, you're right. That's true. Amazing marketing. <laughs> Sorry. And I never, I never really thought about this, but until this moment, but I remember going to fellowship at uh, Pink Tacos. Oh, wow, uh, that's so there. funny. Yeah. Like years <laughs> later in recovery, years you would later. go to meetings or like the meeting after the meeting, they say across from the place where you used to. Yeah, so we, did you start dancing there at some point? She was working there and then you started? Uh, I started, well, like I said, I was in this, I started working for Madame, Madame Ava uh, and it came to a point where I couldn't do that kind of work anymore. At that time, I was, it was, uh, well, one, I had earned enough money to get a car and pay uh, a couple months rent. And I was not a good profit to. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? I heard you say that on another episode too. Yeah. Well, actually I have two questions. One, were you already using at this point? You weren't, you weren't working as a call girl sober. No, correct? I, I was sober as a call girl. Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is important to, to note because I remember I was doing a, uh, a panel in Chicago and someone in the audience asked, oh, so you, you did um, call girl work to support your drug habit. And I said, no, yeah. right. It doesn't have to go together. Right. It's uh, finest. Yeah. It, that is definitely stigma. The concept that every single sex worker is also a drug addict, which is kind yeah. of some of the stuff that I do want to ask you about. But so you were not initially using as a call girl. No, and I, it, I've thought more about this recently that I was, it had I been, I would have lasted, I'm sure, so much longer in that industry. Right. But because I was sober and I was not good at it, when I say not good at it, I mean, I wasn't very good about asking for the money up front, about kind of, you know, hustling. I just wasn't, you know, a very savvy uh, prostitute. 
I remember one story too. Somebody wanted you to talk dirty to them and you, you were so uncomfortable. You couldn't do it. Right. <laughs> that was my first client ever in Chicago. That's a great example of not being a very good about to do. Yeah, I was 19 and it was in Chicago and it's like, yeah, I think it was the first, the first uh, client and I get there and I, uh, he's like, you know, talk dirty to me. And you know, the, the pimp had said, you know, make it seem like you've been doing this for a while. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Sure, I can do that. You know, I've had sex before I can do that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I get there and the guy's like, you know, talk dirty to me. And I just couldn't, I just clammed up and I was just like, it, and he's like, you're new, aren't you? And I said, like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, let's just go for donuts. My don't, my favorite donut place is like, you know, down, like, so we went for donuts and he was a really nice guy and we had like Aww. cinnamon rolls in his car. <laughs> and he said, you know, I think that you need to be with a more upscale. You'll get the hang of this. You should be with more upscale. I don't know. He was just very nice and very encouraging. He, was, <laughs> he didn't ask for me again though, but. He did not. He never asked for you again? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> did he like, did he complain to the company? No. That you weren't able to? Okay. Okay. No, he was, he was, uh, he was a nice guy. Cause you were working for an actual company, right? I remember you finding it in, yeah. cause I would see those ads too, when I was living in LA and I knew what they were yeah. and I was waiting tables and killing myself and had no fucking money. And I would see these ads sometimes and be like, should I call this number and go this route? And, and I never did. Yeah. What do you think makes the difference? This is a huge question, but what yeah. do you think? compelled you to choose that as a route to make money? Well, like I said, I, the first time I uh, was in that industry was um, when I was 19. I was in Chicago and I was there staying with a friend just for the for a few months and I needed to make money for um, for college. And I had been working had been working. I lasted three hours at a 24 hour fitness, something <laughs> comparable, comparable to that in that loose spandex and that little, you know, it was like a 5am job. And I, I was just like, you know, I remember getting there. I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I can't wake up at, you know, be here at 5am and stand in this blue spandex. Like, I mean, it wasn't a spandex part. I got, I can't do spandex. I got to go into prostitution. <laughs> it wasn't like that. But, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was young, I mean, as I hear so many women and men say, you know, there was sexual abuse in my history. And when I was uh, six, I was taken uh, from a park. I was kidnapped from a stranger uh, by a stranger in a park. And he had told me that he would kill me if I ever told, uh, you know, anyone what happened. And I think at that point, there was a real disconnect and a real uh, sense of, I, from a young age, I, I felt like I abandoned my own self, right? And so growing up, I really felt like I, like the self-hatred and because I got in trouble for that experience. It wasn't process, it was process as I did something wrong, right? Who did you get in trouble from? Like your-, your, your My stepmom and- uh, and I think my dad was in India at the time. So I didn't, you know, there was not really, I just remember the experience of getting in trouble. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and back then, I don't think there was a, as much awareness. This was, right. you know, in the, in the 70s, uh, there was no Amber Alert or anything like that. 
and uh, certainly not therapy and all that, you know, the, the forms that more, more services today uh, and awareness, thankfully. And so I think I had no regard for myself. Okay. Right. And I just, it was the fastest way I could think of to make money. I just thought, you know, I just remember you know, looking in the Chicago times and I was eating a can of tuna and I saw that ad saying, you know, make such and such an, an hour. And I specifically remember throwing that can of tuna away, getting another can, coming back, sitting down and calling the number. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me too. So I've had a, a few other sex workers on here with similar stories from when they were young. And I'm just wondering now if, if it feels like if something like that has happened and you're looking at this option later and it wasn't a part of you, your sexuality wasn't a part of you, that you made the conscious choice to open up that part of your life as a teenager or a young adult, as most people do, it was already taken from you, right? And you were shown to have value to men in that way early on. This is my value. It's already been taken. I wonder yeah. if that opens up the pathway a little bit more to this is a vocational aspect of my life and my body. I've been shown that. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, more things happen later on, uh, you know, a few years later, a boy babysitter and and never having a voice. Right. I remember telling my parents, like, I, I really don't like this babysitter. I'm very, it makes me very uncomfortable. And it wasn't listened to. I don't know if that speaks to what you're saying, but no, I think- it does. I think I think there can be a point where it's like, well, that's not a side of me that's been protected, right? And yeah. so I'll if 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 there's going to be a benefit here, I'll take it. Maybe you know, you yeah. know, there's a lot of psychology behind that, and I just kind of boiled it down to a, no, but I think so. Yeah, it it was, uh, you know, I'll just do this for a few months, and you know. so when did you start using? When did that come into your life? So you were working as a call girl. You decided that wasn't working for you anymore. Is that when you started working at the body shop? Uh, yeah, my, well, not at the body shop, that body shop came later, but, uh, yeah, I stopped working for Madame Ava at a certain point and it was a step up to start uh, stripping with my sister and because we're really, really close and seemed like a really good idea. Like, like I said, a step up from prostitution to be like, okay, I'll be, you know, and, and actually I wasn't at first, I served apple juice because in the new clubs in LA, or at least at the time, uh, alcohol wasn't served and uh, so I'd serve apple juice while my sister danced on stage and and it was kind of at one of those like along the tracks uh, strip clubs uh, it wasn't at the body shop okay she quit the body shop and went somewhere else well she quit the body shop because yeah she did showgirls for a little while and that's when I started doing uh, oh the movie yeah oh she's in yeah. that movie she is oh yeah. cool <laughs> I remember when that movie came out because everybody yeah. was freaking out because it was Jesse from Saved by the Bell. Do you even remember this movie? I remember Saved by the Bell. I don't know if I've ever seen Showgirl. Okay. So <laughs> Jesse Spano from Saved by the Bell was in a movie where she was a stripper and it was like this huge. Because he's so attractive and everybody's like, oh my God. No, because or... it was like she was a nerd on the show and then she was doing this. It was like kind of a scandal at the time. Oh, okay. That she yeah. was in the show. But so your sister yeah. was in that movie? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was that whole thing in itself. But once she stopped, once uh, the filming was over, I think it was 
maybe a month or two, she went uh, back to the stripping and, and I, you know, was already there. So we did that together. And there was, I think I was about 24 at that time and she was 21. And we started noticing that the girls there weren't sharing their clothes with us. And we thought that was really rude. We're like, because yeah, like they would share their little, I mean, it sounds weird to share G-strings and outfits, but that that is what, you know, the girls would do. And we just felt so kind of like, and uh, and we realized, well, maybe it's because we're a little curvier than other girls. So we started all these diets and none of them really worked. And so we finally asked this girl, like Athena, like, how, what do you do? So Athena said, well, meth. Like, what do you, what else do you think? And we're like, oh, okay. Like, can you give us some? (laughs) (laughs) So so we're like, we did meth for a month and we got so clumsy on stage and we were in bad moods. And the strangest thing was we didn't lose weight on it. Like, it was nobody doesn't lose weight on that but what I do remember for that is like we're living in Los Feliz and in uh you know in Los Angeles and there was a black formica table in our kitchen and the paint the the kitchen was painted all black and I remember putting those crystals on the on the format on that table and crushing them that first time like that was many many years ago now I remember that. Like, I'm, it's I, like I'm with you. I can see it and hear it under the card. Yes. And it's like that moment of like, like I loved, even before I did my first line, like that ritual, I was like, I'm, I'm in. That's the, so interesting the ritual, that the ritual yeah. got you right away. The ritual but, was like my favorite part. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. it was, I yeah. mean, it was almost as good as putting it in my body, if not better. And for me... Yeah cooking yeah. up and drawing into a needle yeah. was a big part of it too, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, the wow. whole ritual, right? Like just, yeah. it, and I think that was such a big part with sobriety, getting, uh, you know, sober and replacing those rituals. But I remember with my sister, I was like, you make the beds and I'm going to be in charge of this. And she's like, uh, okay. You sorry, know? I'm sorry. It was, you make the beds. I'm going to cut the lines. That was yeah. the divvy of the chores. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And she was like, uh, Okay. <laughs> I say that because it, it did not take for her. The okay. poor did not become one of us. Okay, okay. <laughs> it wasn't very interesting to her. Okay. Um, so that planted the seed, and that, however, didn't work with the. So my my the instigation, the catalyst was to lose weight. Right. Okay. Uh, and from there, because that didn't lose weight, then I went to pills and it was Fenfen at the time. Oh. So we both took Fenfen and that worked. Sure. However, Fenfen at some point got taken off the market. Right. Was that like yeah. Adipex? Was yeah. That, was that like Adi- so, it was Adipex? Okay. Well, I don't know what Adipex is. Adipex is, but... is like what they give you when you go to the weight loss clinic. It's yes. like, it's like, yes, yeah. It's okay. that. Okay. And it was huge at that time. And then they made it illegal. Oh, so, yeah. Yes. It's like legal speed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I remember we were uh, we went to Europe for a couple months, you know, backpacking uh, or whatever, you know, uh, and I had it strapped onto my ankle in one of those money things, like money money belts. But I had all of my uh, fen fen in my on my ankle for two months, like 
because it was it's you know it's a legalized form of speed oh it's definitely yeah because Ad, like, adapex is it, the actual name of it is finter mean so fin fin so you see what i'm saying so, so it's, it's probably derivative it's probably that, a derivative that they made a little bit weaker or something. they made different like on the molecular yeah. scale and it's not the same drug so it's not yeah. illegal yeah. yeah okay i'm catching on okay yeah yeah and, and even then i started getting really sneaky like with my sister i would empty the capsules and put half salt in hers oh my god or, you oh, know trifling i like your <laughs> i like i like your style that is very clever that's a pretty good idea that's very and then the salt is getting more and more she's like this stuff isn't working anymore i wouldn't be able to keep a straight face be like, ah. that's like in have you seen the movie mean girls no okay so in mean oh, girls God. one of the girls gives the girl she says it's weight loss bar but it's like a weight gaining bar and oh. her friend is like these weight loss bars suck they don't get because she's like jealous of her and she gains all this weight and she's like it takes a while that's how it works first you get bigger and then you get smaller and she convinces her to like keep taking it that's fucking hilarious yeah, I, I mean, and then when we were both doing meth, I did the same thing. I would cut hers. And she's like, this is so weird. It's like, and I'm like, I know this is a this is a bunk batch. Like, Athena really, like, you know, Athena really fucked us up. She did some bad shit, you know. That's hilarious, dude. That's awesome. <laughs> My kind of girl. So you're doing Fen Fen, that works. Fen Fen becomes illegal. illegal and yeah. Then, and then you go back to meth. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot that happened in that time in between, but my sister essentially got married and I had like this nervous breakdown because we were really enmeshed. Like it was like our names were Claudia and Lola, our stripper names, and it was like Claudia and Lola, like, you know, just like so enmeshed. In, in So when she got married, I just fell apart. It was like this re re-traumatization of when my mom left when I was mm -hmm. two that I, it just felt like my whole world. And I remember I would go to this California chicken in West Los Angeles uh, every day. And I would sit there and there was like this church across the street and I would see all these people smoking and with their jeans, you know, rolled up. And I'm like, what is that place? Like that just looks so, that, what are they doing outside of this church? I hadn't heard of the program or anything. And one day this guy walked into uh, California chicken and he was wearing like the wife beater and the baggy jeans and the, that like that walk and you know his name like all the tattoos here and the name tattooed across there and we looked at each other and then he like offered me his croutons or something and I followed him to that church and from on the on the break uh I left with him and rescued him from his rehab that actually I just spoke at 20 years later last Wednesday uh, Beit Shuba, this Jewish rehab. I know of that place. So rescued him or got took him out and he started using again with you? Or did you yeah, actually went down the street to Seaway Motel and spent okay. three days there. Okay. And, that, and like I was on. I was on. And he fortunately ended up going back to jail because that was the deal. If you leave that rehab, you go back to jail. Okay. So he went back to jail and I took his contacts and for the next, like, I was an everyday user for, I want to say a decade, but maybe not quite a decade, but like eight years. I was definitely not a periodic. It was meth every every day, unless my dealer uh, went to jail, which, you know, that, that uh, of course, happens. How so, did you support yourself and your habit during that time? Did you continue 
in the sex work industry in some capacity or what did you do during that time? Like so many different jobs. Like I was working at this yoga studio and I, I don't know why, but I, I don't know how I always had money for the drugs. I mean, I didn't spend money on anything else. You don't need food when you're on meth. You don't need, you know, I mean, nothing's so I was working at this yoga studio and then I went back to school. So I, I just had all these different jobs and I was working all the time. Um, so you could keep jobs on meth. I mean, you could keep them for a little while for a little while. Yeah. Like the yoga studio, I finally got fired, you know, I was working there for a couple of years because, uh, they, I, yeah. Why shouldn't I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know why I got fired, you know, <laughs> When, when I'm doing meth in the bathroom while the girls are doing, you know, uh, and, the, and the guys are doing meditation. You know? right. Dude, so I, I remember the first time I went to rehab, I was so fucking confused because I'd been a personal trainer for like really wealthy people in this area and they all stopped booking me. And I was like, what the fuck, dude, why? Like, they don't know I'm on heroin. I know I'm on heroin, but they right. don't know, dude. Like, I go to their house. I'm smoking in the car, but, like, low. And <laughs> then I go in. They don't know. When I got to rehab, I, I was saying that to someone because it my journey into understanding that I was completely unmanageable took a very, 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 very long time. And I just wanted to get out of that rehab and start working again. And I remember saying to someone, this woman that was there, she'd been in prison actually for arson. She was like a registered arsonist in California. And she was like one of my favorite people there. And we were talking and I was like, well, no, I could go work again right now. You know, like no one knew what was going on, but I was like losing all of my gigs and I don't know why. And she said something I've never forgot. She was like, so I believe that human beings are all kind of interconnected. And even if someone doesn't know something is wrong because they see it with their eyes, you can feel that something is off. And there's this idea that if I keep giving this person money, it's not good for them. And like mm -hmm. as humans on a different level of consciousness and awareness, we can know something like that and pull back from these people, right? And, and when she said that, I thought, oh, there's something to that because, you know, some clients actually knew, but most didn't, but started not rebooking me anyways. And it's the same kind of thing. Even if you didn't necessarily do something wrong at that yoga studio, people start to know. And it's like this human response to be like, we don't need to support this individual right now. This is not right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great point. And I, I do remember like I was working at these uh, college because I had gone back to college, oddly enough, during that period. And, uh, and that was my, my plan was once I, uh, you know, finish college, I'll quit meth because I can't do college without meth, you know? And uh, I even remember like taking statistics, which I was, I was really scared to. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I would type out all the equations like all night long, like all the, all the equations. And the teacher took me aside and said, you know, Hannah, you don't really, you don't, we don't need you to type out the equations. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yes, but I do. I, <laughs> I need to, you know. So were you able to complete classes on meth? Were you taking tests and finishing and like gaining credits on meth? Yeah. And I really was under the illusion when, you know, that that I was only able to do it because of meth. And then right. I would quit, you know, with meth. But I was working at that university at the time. I had a part-time job there. And I remember the supervisor who I really loved, we were, you know, she was just really wonderful. She took me into her office one day. She said, Hannah, you know, you, 
we really love having you here, but you need to be on time. Can you do that so we can keep you? And I said, you know, Sandy, I, I really can't. Like, I knew enough about myself that like a mess, you know, it's impossible to leave the house yeah. on time or, you know, I'd be in the bathroom, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's weird. Time just like gets away from you, right? Like I remember I was in sober living once and I'd done like a shot of meth and I, it was the Super Bowl and I was supposed to go up to the big house and watch the Super Bowl. And like hours were passing and I was totally had missed kickoff and like I was not supposed to be using. And I remember the owner of the sober living was a guy and he came down and he knocked on the door and I'll never forget this. I had clothes everywhere. I was like, I'd started painting my nails and then was also trying to like organize my clothes. And I was like half dressed to go watch the Super Bowl. Yeah, and he started to see what I was doing, and then he went, "How you living?" And that's what he asked, "How you living?" And I was like, "Living dirty, man." Like I don't know. And he was like, "You know, I can't let you live here." And I was like, "I'm sorry," because I lived there so many times. It's actually the final yeah, sober yeah, living yeah, that I lived yeah, at. I but yeah, you you just can't you just can't get out on time, you know? Yeah. So there's people like I'm like that when I do meth, and I like I can tell that you're like that, Hannah, as well. Like the like doing things and like. But I remember one like I was in a trap house one time, and people like they were all doing meth, but they were like not that way and like work like just. Like, what do you mean they couldn't get things done? Like just nasty, you know what I mean? I hate. To, I'm not trying to paint them in a bad picture, but well, it was that's like, how I got. And I was like, yo. Well, that's how I got. I got I'm to like it. cleaning and shit, and yeah. trying to make sure. But it was. It was the trap house was my house though, so I was trying to take care of it. Yeah. But. yeah. Well, but my periods of being able, of doing meth and then actually taking care of things were like very few and far between. Normally, I would just pick my face and oh, make everybody I, really grossed out. Oh yeah, I would do that too. I'd get yeah. fixated on my yeah. Oh yeah, that oh. was the main thing I did was pick my fucking yeah. face. Yeah, same here in the Rite Aid bathroom. I mean, I know I always say this, but like. In LA, if you when you visit, I know all the good bathrooms yeah. and all the bad ones. I mean, any bathroom's good when you're using, but right. like, and oh, to this, that's my comfort place to this day. I feel I'm like so like that is my fucking spot. The bathroom, right? yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do this where like I'll still to this day go into a bathroom? I'm like I'll check it. I'm like oh, this is a really good one. You'll do that too, dude. Okay, so I live in a bougie fucking neighborhood right now, and we have a pool and a hot tub. And yeah. there's a there are two, there's a men's room and a women's room, and they lock and you do a little timer and it turns on a light and a heater, and there's a <laughs> shower in there, and no one ever goes in there. And it's not locked. It's not locked. And I'm like, this would be the bombest place if I had been homeless, if I had known about it. All these people are asleep to come in here at night, turn the heat on and take a shower. Sleep, get a shower. Yeah. yeah That's so funny that you said that because I do that too. I still notice if a bathroom would be a good bathroom to be using in. I still totally notice that. That's funny. I never yeah. I was even taking a hike the other day and I went into this bathroom, you know, and I'm like, I guess I could, like, even if it's a bad one, then I'm like, where would I do it? I guess on that toilet, on that little where the toilet paper is, like right. there, the little the little piece of metal, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, and <laughs> something becomes like all all of that. Like was... I always look for residue in the bathroom too. Do you? I, I look, I look for yeah. yeah, just to see. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it, I'm just, I just, it's like what I think. I like, I see like the, the the metal or the toilet. And I'm like, okay, I do drugs there. Like I right. would, like 
I want to know if there's residue there. I'm gonna check oh my God. Good. I would have those wipes where you can wipe the counters and see if it turns blue. That means there's like cocaine residue. I just to see. Yeah. I just want to know. <laughs> I just want to know. That would be cool to do, like in a fancy hotel. Like I was at uh, at this uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel with a with a client the other day, yeah. and uh, and I went into the restroom there, and I was like, "Wow, this one!" Like, yeah. I, oh yeah, well, you know. They Gordon, so Gordon Ramsay, I'm sure you know who he is. So he he had like this restaurant, right? And they were, I don't know how they got fixated on the employees doing coke, but they took the wipes. And I don't know how accurate they are, but that's well, that's another time. So they wiped the bathrooms and stuff with the wipes, and they turned blue if they're positive for good cocaine. And they turned blue, and he's like, "Who's fucking doing coke on a bloody Sunday? It's fucking <laughs> snow." He was like, "All pissed and shit." On so a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is good. I'd love to do that in one of the fancier ones. Yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah it was like a, a, an upscale like restaurant. He's like all fucking mad. Fancy places still make me think of that too. You know, oh, same oh. thing. So, so, so you're off to the races doing yeah. meth for another eight years daily. What finally yeah. stops you? How do how do we how do we get to that? I like for me the whole thing was a bottom, right? So I it's so hard to say what what it was. One of the things though that I loved doing on meth was uh, gardening. Well, I wouldn't really call it gardening, but the bougainvilleas, you know, bougainvilleas, those, those, uh, it's like a prickly bush okay. with some kind of flowers. They're, re they're really pretty. Uh, and wherever I lived, I had these bougainvilleas. So I was living in this one place and I had bougainvilleas and it was, I remember being in my nightgown a see-through nightgown and with the bougainvillea no like no shoes on or or you know like a, just a sleeveless nightgown and no no gloves and what I would do it was like picking the, my face right like when you guys identify with that but it was picking the branches so I picked one and I'm like oh that looks so much better and then I'd pick another one and another one and time just like it would be like I remember it was a period where I was living with my boyfriend. He'd go off to work and I'd be like, bye, you know, in my little see-through nightgown, like waving, you know. And then I'd be like, oh, I'll just go back in the house. But I would pick, but on the way, I'd pick a, a bougainvillea branch. He would come home and it'd still be out there. Oh my right? God. Like the insanity, yeah. the insanity and that, and that, that dry mouth. And I'd have to pee. And I remember a neighbor bringing me lemonade and she said, are you on drugs? The only person that's ever asked me that ever while I was uh, in my using days. What did you say when she asked you? Do you remember? I'm so appalled. I'm like, like, I was so appalled. I'm like, of course not. I'm not, what? I, I never do drugs. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm just, you know, I love gardening. And uh, so anyway, this one day I was with the bougainvillea bushes and it was that same like dry mouth. I had to pee and it was like, okay, Hannah, like I would tell myself, just go in after this one, one more, right? One more, one more hours pass. And you guys know just how time is just, yeah. and it becomes so interesting where I'm like, and everything that I'm, you're, at least for me, that I'm doing and fixated on. And I remember like what, it started getting dark and I finally pour myself away into the restroom, bathroom. And I looked at myself in the mirror and it looked like I had been attacked by, uh, in the jungle. Like there was 
streaks of blood and like up and down my arms and on my legs and my feet and you know just it, because of the the, the bushes right. and I remember like I, I think I kind of collapsed on the floor and that is what like I remember that as my last day of using meth okay. and and it's not like I said that that day was any worse than other days something happened that day and at that point I was probably about 36 37 years old and and I was done like I was done and at that point I had never really been much of a drinker and when I thought Jewish people can't be drinkers and I'm Jewish even though I rescued that uh prison guy from Jewish rehab right. <laughs> didn't really put it together and uh I began like having one glass of wine even with my friends I remember saying oh wow you're so adult this is cool you're having a glass of wine with us and I'm like isn't it and like a month later it was you know, two bottles a day and then like it became so apparent to me that it replaced this. And I, I think it's important to share can happen at any age, right? Like here I am at 36, never like being able to finish a glass of wine, but I saw really quick that it just replaced the mess. And that scared the shit out of me. I like that was really scary. I could, I saw the unmanageability and it's like, I remember in the early days when I was doing meth, like it would be like, it was a month, right? Then it was two months. And then I'm like, what's a summer? I'm in my twenties and, you know, meth in the summer, this summer, like it's a, you know, experience. And then it was a year and then it was five years, right? Then seven years. And I saw the same thing with the alcohol yeah. and it scared me. Yeah. And yeah. At the time, I had was working at this law school, shockingly, that I could keep a job there. And I remember, um, I just always remember sitting on the toilet there and like doing, you know, drinking. I had, you know, and looking through those little cracks at the at the law school students and with their, you know, blonde ponytails swinging and like, it's like, who are these girls, right? And like, but my my point in sharing that is I was always in the bathroom in a file room drinking. Yes. So that job became more and more unmanageable because there's only so many hours you can tell the dean that you're filing. And so my sister and I thought this was my our my best thinking towards towards the end. We need to start working together. We can't strip. We tried to get a stripping job, you know, but we were both in our thirties and we didn't try that hard. We thought, let's, let's, what else could we do? Let's put an ad on Craigslist and be, uh, yes, foot fetish dominatrix sisters. And we thought that is a good idea. That is all we'll have to do then is make sure that our feet look good. We can be together and then work would be minimum. By this point, she had a little baby. So it was what? like, what does that even mean a foot fetish dominatrix what would that even look like what does that mean well it would mean like you know telling the guy like you know like whipping him while telling him to lick your feet and, oh my God. and there's a whole market for this there's a market for this oh yeah okay oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> don't okay. get any ideas now 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we, so we Holy shit. Up. Okay. We our, our, you know, our like our headless pictures of ourselves and, and, if you can think it's somebody's I mean I'm All not right. knocking anything yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean it's like yeah. okay. limitless okay so you post pictures without your face and post on Craigslist was that a successful venture did people call you uh, we did get some calls we got uh, and we decided on this one man um, from Newport this, senior, this, this lawyer married lawyer from Newport Beach and it was Thanksgiving morning and we had our interview with him at Swingers, the diner on in Hollywood. I don't know if you know remember Swingers. It's a like Hollywood diner place where actually there's a lot of fellowship. Uh, and I still go to a fellowship. However, so it was like I said, Thanksgiving morning, we we wake up and we put on our like uh mini skirts, our leather mini skirts and our stilettos, and you know, my sister's like, okay, try to look like a bitch, you know, and I'm getting I'm like, and I'm not I'm not the best at looking like that, you know, and I'm like, okay. You know, and I hadn't had a drink yet, but mind, mind you, right? She's like, just don't have a drink. Have a drink after. I should have had a drink before. Okay. <laughs> so we get a booth and my sister's like, you know, telling the waitress, get him a warm blueberry muffin, like trying to act like, you know, anyway, uh, that didn't go very well. She's like, what the fuck happened to you? You were like a towering deer in the corner there. That's not dominatrix. Like that's not the way dominatrix Anyway, he did, he did call us, but okay. we stopped. Well, um, you know, she would have been better at it, but it was not, it, it wasn't a very good match for me. Okay. So instead, her mother-in-law at the time was a dominatrix uh, in New York. And she's like, honey, what you need is a couple sugar daddies and I'll help you write the ad. And so she, we posted an ad for uh, exclusive sugar daddies on Craigslist looking for an arrangement and actually in my book is the exact letter uh exact ad that was that was posted at that time on craigslist mm -hmm. and so she helped me decipher through the replies and my brother-in-law took me to the interviews with the guys like it was this whole family thing like the whole family was on it on that side so anyway that took a little while but i did end up getting two sugar daddies i got one orthodox jewish man and then an iranian sugar daddy so I share that because that was my, when I came into the program or when I got sober, I had a boyfriend, a lover, and the two sugar daddies. Oh that was my best thinking, right? And, and I share that story because that's, that's a clip, that's a snapshot of how I came in and how much I needed to change my life. Yeah. And what is possible because I did change it. So did you go to rehab first or did you just go to a meeting one day and never drink again? What did it look like for you? Uh, I always thought rehab was just for fame, uh, not famous, uh, rich people. Okay. But then I also knew like maybe like a, you know, I don't know. I was also scared of getting fat because I, I remember there was like a lot of food that, that I thought was at rehab and people always said like, you'll gain 10 pounds. And I'm like, I can't. Line, like you put like, they feed you nothing but carbs and protein in, in treatment. Yeah. So I'm like, I can't do that because, you know, like, uh, and I was in therapy at the time and before therapy, there was a CVS in Beverly Hills. It was right across the street and I would drink in that CVS, uh, on the, you know, in the bathroom there. 
And one day early on, this particular therapist said, if you come in like this, we can't do the work. And something snapped in me where I knew I had a problem at that point. Like I, I knew, you know, I had tried all of that stuff, like not drinking before 12, not drinking before five, you know, all, all of the things to try to stop. And her saying that, it something in me snapped. Okay. And the next day I, I went to my first uh, meeting and I say that like, like, I don't mean it like, and then ne next day, this poof, and I went to my first meeting, it was hell. <laughs> oh, it was hell. And I just remember walking in and, and raising my hand and I couldn't speak. I was just sobbing, but I knew that I was powerless, that my life was unmanageable and that I needed help. Yeah. Beyond that, I didn't hear a word, I, anything beyond that. But I knew, I knew I was in a place that it was okay to not be okay. Yeah. And you never drank again? That was it from that day? I never drank again. However, like I said, like I kept hearing people say, you're going to gain 10 pounds. And, and I just was like, well, that just can't happen. And so I remember taking Adderall and I didn't know that that was a, not allowed or not, not, not allowed. I mean, it wasn't prescribed for me. Adderall was meth. I mean, I'm, I have no opinion on that, but I know for me, I was doing it in a meth-like way. Okay. I hear you. You don't have an opinion on whether or not somebody else takes a prescribed medication, but for you, Adderall, for me too, I've thought about that too. Adderall would probably cross a bound for me, <clears throat> even if I got it prescribed because I'd had it prescribed when I was younger. Now it would be a stimulant. It would be, you know, my original drug of choice was cocaine. So for my me, intention, I think it's about the intention behind it. My intention would be. Right. And so when I first came in, like first got sober, I didn't really re understand the idea of, you know, sobriety. Right. And then I remember being at a meeting and someone raised their hand and they said, I have something to say. I've been saying I have seven years. I don't, I've been taking pills. And I heard that. Yeah. And at that point I knew I was lying. I remember taking like a dirty 90 day chip at like this red carpet of meetings in the Palisades and walking down in that feeling of like the walk of shame. Yeah. And I knew like at 90 days, like I was just like, I had to start over. So I will say I relapsed on, uh, on Adderall at my first three months. Okay. Uh, and then that was the end. That was, that was the end. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. It was no pink cloud. It was that whole thing of how am I going to get my head to the pillow sober? Yeah. Every minute, every hour was unbearable because how do you go from, you know, living, using and drinking every day to real time The I just felt paralyzed or I was paralyzed with the depression, with the anxiety and I just remember all I wanted to do was sleep away the days and just, and the one, the one thing I did was I kept coming back and getting my head to pill, to pillow sober. So how did you manage those early days? So a, a meeting every day, it sounds like, <clears throat> and by the way, guys, obviously we're talking about 12 step meetings, right? I'm assuming you mean Alcoholics Anonymous. <coughs> so a meeting every day, 
what yeah. other stuff did you do? Did you do all the program stuff? Did you do sponsor steps, all the things? Like, what did you do to get through where your head hit the pillow sober? What What did you do? Well, I mean, I got, I went to the nearest uh, place that was, was near my house so I could walk because uh, I had gotten total, kind of totaled my car. Uh, <laughs> that's been one of the things that, you know, kind of totaled my car. Um, <laughs> And I went to the LGBT center, which was walking distance from my house. And I just, I immersed myself in that particular group. And I felt safe there too, because I was, I think there was a fear that if I went to a lot of straight meetings, I might hook up with someone that was uh, like that guy, right? Like, yeah, I'd be attracted to the wrong person. Right, yeah. And that would be trouble. And uh so I remember going to those meetings in the beginning, like my picker was really off, which seems very natural to me with sponsorship. Uh, so it was a rocky first, rocky start, but yeah. Oh, your picker was off with sponsors. Oh yeah. Oh, so interesting. Okay, okay. Oh yeah. I didn't would know go, I'm sure that happens. That makes sense, you know? And what do you mean by that? Like, <clears throat> what would go wrong? <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't know first that a sponsor should have a sponsor. Okay. Um, like a sponsor needs to go through the steps. Like I just, I was so elsewhere that like, I didn't eat, like it was, I was so out of body, so elsewhere that like, even when they were celebrating people's birthdays, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have my 40th birthday here in a couple months. Like, <laughs> oh God. I, I'm telling. Yeah. Oh, that's so I mean, funny. The first time I remember my first meeting and they were talking about an inventory I thought they were the police trying to get me to uh, like talk about all my shit and they were gonna come arrest me. I was like, everybody in this means a fucking informant. I remember it. I fucking remember it. And I believed it. The I mean, I was on a sick one, but that's what I thought was going on. Well, you know, there's so much stuff with the program that we take for granted now that I didn't know either. Like that, like what you just said. My first meeting was a CA meeting and I did not know that I couldn't drink too. Like right. I had a coke problem, and then uh, somebody so mentioned drinking or whatever, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm cool on that." Like this is CA, right? And they're like, "Yeah, but we do like like I just I did not understand that concept." Like there's yeah. a learning curve when you start twelve step that I think over time sometimes we forget about. But like those are both great examples, you know. Like when you first get there, there's there's just so much that you don't necessarily know. That's so that's so interesting though the concept of like you can have a broken picker with sponsorship because we talk about broken pickers and we normally mean relationships but like mm -hmm. my husband was even saying this to me recently he was like i think you have a broken picker with like friendships with like female friendships he was like you're right. good on boyfriends they've all been nice to you you have a problem picking friends and i'm like that might be true it like blew my mind so how did you eventually get to a spot where you recognized a good sponsor like what would you tell someone else when they're looking for one i would say well, first ask the basic questions. Like, it seems very clear to me now, but I just did not know, right? I would call them for a little while first and check in with them, see if there's a rapport on the phone, see what kind of program they work. But these are kind of like hard things. So it's like, program you work? What are you talking about? What's a program even? What are you talking about, period? Uh, but so the basic questions, checking in with them, like for the sponsor that I ended up getting a year sober. So like when I say my picker was off, like my first sponsor, like I said, didn't have a sponsor. And she, when I told her that I was doing, that I had done Adderall, 
she freaked the fuck out. Like she was like a bulldog through my place. She was furious. For me, that kind of sponsorship is doesn't work. Right. right? And she's like, get in the car. And she dropped me off at me and said, find a ride home. And I knew then like, oh, that doesn't work for me. No, that's harsh. That's a shit move. Yeah, it is. Yeah, what a bitch. I'm that's sorry, so crazy. That's, that's oh yeah. That's ridiculous. I would never do that. I would never do that to somebody yeah. either. I mean, ever. Ever. I would never do that. But that's what we do. We drink and we use. Right. Yeah. I, I like. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like this is what are you talking about? I've just been, yeah. Like of course I'm gonna lie to you and. <laughs> I've been lying for my whole fucking life. Right. Totally. Okay. But thank God for the people in the program. Cause I shared, you know, I walked in and I was sobbing and I remember I knew a couple people from other meetings and they put their arm around me and they said, come on, we're going to go for pizza. They didn't even talk about it. They just put their arms around me and said, we're going for pizza. And then they brought me home. Yeah. Right. Like about a year in I was, I had a sober job at that point, stocking dog food at a, my friend's uh, pet food and supply store and who I was working with. There's a lot of sober people working there. And one of the, one of the guys said, you know, I, I, I think there's something off with your, my second sponsor. And she, he said, I think I have a sponsor that would be really good for you. And so she, he pointed her out to me and I, I watched her for a while at that point. Like I said, I had a year. I watched her, finally asked her, and she said, girl, I was waiting for you to ask, because it was like I just had to kind of like, you know, and that was uh, 12 years ago, and she's still my sponsor. Oh, that's so after. cool. That's one of the cool things about 12-step. I know we've debated the pros and cons, but finding a sponsor, I've had my sponsor, Rachel, for, so I've, I've got eight years, and I've had her for nine, and she sponsored me through relapses. She's amazing. She's like a 911 source for me if I'm about to use or if I'm about to have a crisis. It's it's the most probably the most beneficial thing that I picked up from 12 step, you know, is the concept of of a sponsorship and, and finding her, you know. So how are you now? What does your life look like now at 12 years? I still get to as many meetings as I did then. Like I feel very fortunate that right from the beginning I surrounded myself with people and I've stayed in the middle. And because I've gotten with a group of people that I love being around. So even when I don't want to go to a meeting, there's a friend I want to meet there. Right. And so I've been very fortunate that, like I said, I've, I've always gone to meetings. I've always had commitments. I, uh, you know, have a few sponsees that I, that I work with and, and my sponsor, of course, and my program where I am right now has been an interesting uh, time. I'm my, this past year, my greatest fear and my greatest dream have come true. So I'm in a place where like my relationship with my higher power is stronger than ever. And, and I'm in a place of, of grief and also celebration and learning to live without my father. My father, my greatest fear was my father dying. And he passed last year. And I thought that I would fall apart and I thought I would use and drink. Like I just thought I would never make it. 
And because of the programming, because of watching other people in the program go through this and getting to show up for him in the years prior in a way that there's, I, in a way that I was guided through. I got to be there to his last breath. Wow. And I don't have one regret. And, and within that too, my greatest dream came true with publishing the book. And so showing up for both of those things, packing up his, you know, things, um, the launch of the book, going on a book tour in the midst of, of this grief, right? And not doing the things that, that support the book, right? Not getting completely lost in the grief means like the foundation of, of the program has held me. And where I'm at right now is like my emotional and physical sobriety is still number one. Because if I don't have that, like if I'm feeling emotionally off and so raw, like that's more important to take care of that than anything else, right? So it's this real balance uh, in my sobriety right now. The balance of what does that look like? Like what's taking me not necessarily closer or farther, like farther away or closer to a drink or a drug, but from my sobriety, from my emotional serenity. I love that. So you evaluate choices based on, is this going to take me towards or away from emotional stability? Yeah. And when I say that, like my first example is when I first got sober, going back to those two sugar daddies, because I still had them when I got sober. And I remember with the uh, Orthodox Jewish man, I couldn't sleep with, I couldn't sleep with either of them without a drink. Like I knew that. And I knew that as soon as I got sober. So with the Orthodox Jewish man, I, I ended it because it was like, is that going to take me closer to a drink or uh, that was, and that was so scary because I didn't like working. I couldn't hold a job at that point. I'm like, this is how I'm paying my rent and I'm going to give that up and how, what's going to come in place. Like what, what you're asking me to get a sober job, stocking dog food. <laughs> how is a minimum wage job going to, and, and I share that because, um, I mean, it all circles back to, I mean, there's a lot of things I want to tie in here, but, but to keep it simple for right now, at that point, it was about physical sobriety, right? So is this going to, is this sleeping with this man going to, am I going to be able to? No. With the Iranian sugar daddy, I knew the same, but he, he, for some reason, hung in there for a year and a half with no sex. Wow. And we kept seeing each other and he would take me to Trader Joe's. And when I say like sugar daddy, I mean like $200 a month and going to Trader Joe's, which when you have a minimum wage job, that was huge. Yeah, totally. Right. And, but it did come a time where I needed to, I knew that that wasn't feeding my emotional sobriety. And that was about two years into the program. And my sponsor directed me to say goodbye to that. And I was petrified. Like, how am I, again, how am I going to pay my rent? That gripping financial fear. However, whenever I've made choices that have supported my physical and emotional sobriety, 
whenever I have, and I've seen this with people I've worked with, I've seen it with people I don't know, but I've listened to and watched in the rooms, they've been taken care of. I've been taken care of. Like I have always been taken care of. And, you know, some days to this day, going back to what you said, where am I at today? Some days it doesn't feel like it will be. Like I woke up today and I was just like, oh my God, I feel so raw. Like I just feel like, I just, like, I don't want to do, I don't want to do this day. Right. What did you do to get through and, and show up here? Well, I prayed and I meditated and I have my daily readings and I, uh, I was looking forward to talking with you. So that was a Good. positive thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and you, Narcan, Narcan, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> both of you. So that was, you know, and then a sponsee texted confirming that we're meeting today. It, just like it was in the beginning. Yeah. One, one moment, one day at a time. Same thing. What are your daily readings? You said you have daily readings. What What is that? I have daily reflections. Okay, uh, the AA book, Daily Reflections. Yeah, which it, you know, it, yeah, uh, I read that one. And then I also have two other ones because I am an Al-Anon as well uh, called Curse Change. But whether Al-Anon or not, I just really love it because it's more focused on self-care. Okay. Which I think in AA is a real balance. Yeah. Or I mean, in the program, the 12-step program, right? Because it's so about service, but I is uh the lang language of learning i think it's called with melody bd okay. so I, I have those three yeah i, I really I, I really love them i mean I, yeah they're very helpful and uh yeah so that's how i prepared my morning what would you say is the most important component and i know they say in the program and i believe this you can't do just one thing right you got to do all the things and like I get that, but typically we've got a few things that, what would you say is the most important component of your recovery now at 12 years later? What do you, what can you say? Like, this is what I do. This has been it for me. This has got me to 12 years. I mean, it is the steps and it's my higher power. Those are all cultivating things, right? Without fellowship, without the, my people, I don't know. Like it's been the people that have carried me. It's the people that have brought me back to the steps. It's the people through hearing other people's uh, struggles that has brought me closer to my higher power. So it's through the fellowship that keeps bringing me back. Uh, I really think the fellowship, and when I say fellowship, I mean meetings. I mean, having my tribe. You know, I have such great friends in this program. Unbelievable. What would you say if somebody was new, 30, 60, 90 days? A tip for a newcomer. I always like to ask this. What would you say to someone to start doing immediately to help them with the best shot to stay clean? Get your tribe. I mean, hold on to your tribe. Get your trudging buddies. That's what I did. Because with sponsorship being so rocky in the beginning and having a bad picker, it was the fellowship that still carried me, Right. Yes, I was working the steps and, and I was going through the book, but it just went right over my head. Right. The, other, the, the however, actually the biggest, the single biggest thing was I just kept coming back. Like I remember old timers saying, 
you know, and everyone just kept, kept welcoming me. Like I go to, I remember going to a meeting and I'd be all like dressed up in my cute little outfit or what I thought was cute. And I'd be like, I'm going to go see my sugar daddy tonight. And then all the guys and girls, the you know, LGBT central say, girl, you look cute. Just keep coming back. And that's <laughs> what I did. Right. Yeah. Like I just kept coming back yeah. and, and really taking it that moment to moment, head to pillow sober because I don't know, beyond that, it's just like, uh, it, it's just so much thrown at, at least for me, that was the thing that carried me or, or you guys. I have a question about sex work in general. So there's a really big conversation today around like, is sex work more empowering, right? Or yeah. is sex work, you know, like there's a conversation here now. And in fact, and I became like aware of this when I had somebody else on a few months ago, who's a long-term sex worker. And I met a girl the night before and she knew who it was, who I was interviewing, she, who I was interviewing. And I thought she was going to be like stoked. This girl does OnlyFans. And she was like, oh no, we don't like her. And I said, why? And she was like, because she's anti-sex work. And I was like, oh, okay. And then when I interviewed her, I asked, I was like, but you're not anti-sex work in general, right? You just mean for you. And she doubled down and was like, no, I think it's bad for everyone all the time. I'm not ever going to let go of that. I'm sorry. I'm older than these girls. I'm telling you, it ain't headed anywhere. Good. I'm doubling down on this position, which mm -hmm. I can respect, right? That she, that she doubled down and, and didn't, you know, didn't uh, give ground on that. I'm curious what your opinion on that is. Do you think it can be like an empowering thing or do you think that it's, where do you stand on that? I I mean, I think it can be. I know my sister, I've met women who do have definitely felt empowered by it. And, and, uh, and I can't speak for them other than I know that was their experience. Okay. I have two friends now that were strippers in sobriety. I've known people that have done sex work in sobriety. I really don't have an opinion on that. All I can speak to uh, is my own. And for me, for me, it wasn't empowering. It just wasn't. It was, uh, that was just not my experience of it. Okay. Um, but it is definitely uh, a question. And, and it's definitely uh, something that's widely talked about today. Totally. Yeah. And I worked with a lot of the, a lot of girls that really did feel it. They were able to save money, right? They were able to do all these things uh, and feel empowered. Well, uh, for I me, probably it, like anything else, it's about the individual's experience with it, you know? So, I mean, I, I just, I'm not a black and white person with it, right. with, saying, you know, and I'm so glad too that I had a sponsor early on that you know, didn't, wasn't black and white with it too, saying you have to not see this man. Right. Yeah. But back to the empowering thing, it's, it's such an interesting question. And I also think sometimes it's, this, this actually speaks outside my own experience, but sometimes I also, also think it's a coping mechanism. Maybe it's a way of trying to reframe experiences that weren't positive. Right oh, now, power. Right, yeah. so it's, I'm taking charge of this now. Yeah, this is mine. I'm making this good. I'm making money. I feel powerful with this. That's actually I've actually never thought of it that way. That it's a way to take back power. I'm sure that's true. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I have another question. So, meth to lose weight. Right. That's common. 
And, you know, when you get to rehab, often we do gain weight. Dude, I remember I showed up at my last detox. I was like 108 pounds. And I remember going, you know what? I got on the scale and I was like, I might be almost dead, but at least I'm little. I'll take yeah. it. That's a win for today. And like, that's how women feel. And then, of course, I gained 20 yeah. pounds in the first 60 days. And then it's terrifying as a woman to gain weight after, okay. you know what I mean? And it's like, it's such a huge trigger for women. You asked once why it's hard for women to stay clean. You know, like you hear that sometimes it's harder. Yeah. I think that that's partially why. So, and I didn't think of it that day, but like, that's a trigger when you start to gain weight. It's a huge mm -hmm. trigger to start using again, or to maybe take another avenue, which can lead back to the stimulants, like Adderall to lose weight. Or yeah. you know, yeah. managed feeling that over 12 years of seeing your body change in sobriety, but not relapsing to lose weight. How, how have you managed that? Well, the beginning was really hard. I mean, I remember specifically going to a, uh, a wedding my first month of sobriety in Hawaii with my sister. And we were like, how are we not going to eat the wedding cake? Like, just how are we? And we were like, Adderall. we got to take Adderall with us. And so we did. And I was sober, or I thought I was sober then. And that was how I dealt with it. And that did not turn out well for me. Uh, and I did eat the cake. <laughs> Regardless. Wait, you did end up eating it anyways? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, wedding cake is so good, especially if it's all like fancy looking. Wedding cake is so good. I know. Good. And I'll look at it the whole wedding like, and I'll think like, fuck all this, the dancing and stuff. I just want to get to that cake, you know? Yeah. I know I do that. Yeah, I know. I know how you are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have experience with snacks with you. <laughs> I'll eat anything, bro. Anything. Oh, no, I did, I did. She stole my snacks, by the way. I stole snacks from him once. <laughs> So, but don't be near those snacks. Don't do it. I remember in early in sobriety, I would take care of people's dogs and dog sitting. But my 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 prerequisite was no sugar in the house. And like, and I I was strict about that. And I remember one friend did, and I said, mm -mm, "Can't do it. That I'm gonna throw that out." Or you like, yeah. so mm, it was really hard. I well, how have I handled that? I mean. On a, on a, I'd like to say like, you know, well, my sobriety and my figure, like sobriety is more important than my figure, right? However, what I did was I, I'm a big exerciser. So, you know, I walked everywhere and went to the gym all the, you know, every day. That was also beyond my body. That was really helpful and continues to be so for my emotional well-being and also I was so paralyzed at the time that it was like that walking gave me something to do for that hour or two hours. Uh, I, I got really weird is how I did it. <laughs> I started, I started, uh, I got a carrot addiction. A I'm carrot a addiction? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm an addict. Right. So I'm like these carrot, you know, carrots were, I would, I was down, I was up to a pound of carrots a day. Oh my God. And I started, turning which is not that many i know i, I see your eyes <laughs> Nate. that seems like i'm like did you start hopping too or what <laughs> no, kidding. i mean it's, it's one of those like mini bags but it is a lot it's a pound of pear yeah a pound of pear carrots and it got to the point where i go to media and people are like you're turning orange like i was i'm not joking like i was orange orange my palms and my hands because that's really where it is and then my whole and I remember going to the meetings, like during the meetings, I'd have my carrots because I had to always have something. Yeah. And 
uh, and I remember then when I had to quit because I was, you know, my vanity, I was like, I can't be orange. Like, <laughs> you know, this is not the best look. And, uh, and I remember going to the meetings and again, tolerance and love, love and tolerance. God be like, I don't know how I'm fucking to eat my carrots tonight. Like, how am I going to go to the bed without the carrots? And, uh, Oh you know, my God, that's so funny. And I'm sure that that helped munching and crunching on something healthy throughout the day. Definitely yeah. like that. that's actually a valid weight loss or that's a valid management tool to me. That's a valid coping tool, tool in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. It's a little funny. It's silly, right? But like, that's totally yeah. legit. You know, totally. we'll do that with fucking smoking. Yeah. You know? And gum, like I'm, I've been a gum, like I order it from Amazon, like those Orbit packs which are really expensive now like it's an expensive habit and it's been 12 years like I get anxious if I don't have orbit bubble mint gum in my purse like everyone I'm getting those ask on it if you want gum dude I'm like that with Altoids oh she's a freak yeah she's a freak legitimately dude the other day I was driving to teach a spin class I was on my way and I realized I didn't have my Altoids I turned around and came back I can't teach without having them near me I'll go home I'll be late Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. eat them pretty quietly, though. I just try to open up the. T- Although I've heard myself you're, on the you're mic. Like, you're like a rat nibbling on a piece of cheese or something. <laughs> also, <laughs> hearing me, I like sucking that so it's quiet. Occasionally, though, you can hear me on the mic, like, and I'm like, damn it, when I'm editing. <laughs> damn it, Janine. I know I'm not having it now because it's hard to talk with it. So, right. <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, as soon as I get, as soon as we're done, that bubble mint gum, like I am, just, I'm going crazy on it. I am going crazy. Are you grateful in general that you went down the path of addiction and alcoholism? Is that, are you, do you look back now? Do you wish it never would have happened? Or are you grateful that that's part of your journey? It took me a long time to feel grateful. When people would say, I don't regret the past, nor look, you know, shut the door on it. I'm like, I do. Yeah. I, I regret it. Uh, it took quite a lot of years to get to the point. Like when I would hear people say that they're grateful, I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And how could I possibly be grateful for this? I'm grateful. I'm on the other end. I am grateful because uh, it's really given, like, I didn't, you know, when they say like restore us to insanity, give our life back. Like, I don't think I, ha- I don't, I didn't have a life before. Like, I mean, an inner life, like any inner stability, any emotional stability where I can sit with myself and be comfortable. But because of recovery, I've been able to do my life in a way that I've always looked up to other people doing. Right. And had I not gone through all that, plus you know, turning it into art, turning it into a book yeah. uh, has been incredible, right? And turning it into a book is so beautiful. This is, that's my ultimate goal. I admire the recovery authors that come on here. I'm like, oh, you wrote a book, bro. It's like my, it's like my number one goal. Mm-hmm. I need to just, you know, every year it's like a goal of mine. I'm like, gotta write a book, gotta write a book. But I, I love that you sat down and you, you put it on paper, you know, and that you it wrote a long it down. Time. It's so hard to do. Did it take a long time? Oh yeah. The whole process, 10 years. And I remember like, it took it, you 10 years to write your book. Yeah. Not necessarily write it, but the whole publishing of it. And also I didn't sit down ready to write a book. Okay. I was writing. Okay. And, Is that why know. it's kind of, it feels like almost journal entries a little bit. Is that what you were doing? 
Uh, by the time I was sitting down to do that, uh, not this, well, I was, it was little vignettes and I was also yeah. publishing. I was working, I was Amy, you know, Amy Dresner. Yeah. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Uh, we were both writing for the fix and, uh, and I had those little, these little clips of things like actually I wrote about the carrots and the, and that, uh, and yeah, it took the whole process, 10 years between the writing, the publishing of it, because there's so many different avenues to go. Right. And also, I think the single biggest thing that it took the time that it needed to take was I couldn't sit with myself to write. Yeah. Like learning to sit with myself, like how if I'm out, if I'm in the bougainvillea bushes for 10 years right. in bathrooms, like how am I going to sit down with myself? Right. Like right here alone and put something on paper, intolerable. Right. And it's a process, right? And it takes time to get to the place where you can even do that, you know? Yeah. And just like with sobriety, you know, it was one word at a time. Like I remember my soap, my uh, sponsor said five minutes a day. That's it. Yeah. That's how I started. Wow. That's so cool. So where can everybody find you? Where can people find your book and connect with you? I uh, can find it on Amazon. It's called Strip a Memoir. And uh, it's a, it's an easy read quick read like you as you know and you can find me on instagram which is hana uh spelled like hannah sword with an a hana sword author and uh yeah awesome well thank you so much for your time today this yeah, was thank great you so much yeah. you guys, it's such an honor i yeah you guys are both you guys both rock oh thank you thanks man i'm so glad yeah. that, you, that you did the show um, thank you for giving me time to, I showed her tank oh, okay, and then run him cool. upstairs, of which I got to go get. What did you think of his, we're not fat shaming, but what did you think of his fat roll on his nose? Is well, not the greatest thing ever? I'm all about it. Like I, <laughs> like I am. Yeah, I'm bring it up. He's so cute. Oh, he's, he's, he's a, he's a devil. I know. He is like a devil of yeah. a dog though. It's so funny. Yeah. All right. Well, he was go a good behavior when he came to, when I met him. He was him really her. sweet when I showed him to her. Well, he's not, he just sat there. Oh yeah. That's when not, he sees that is, Nate, that he is not the case. He looked at her and he went. It was like he could see her on the Zoom, and he was like, "Look at he's a demon." I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> this is not the case. All right. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. This will actually.